You're listening to the Asking for a Friend podcast, an elder-led ministry of Believer's Baptist Church in Emory, Texas. The Asking for a Friend podcast exists as a weekly resource for the edification and knowledge of God's people. My name is Tyler Jones. I'm your host. Thanks for listening in, whoever you may be and wherever you may be. May the Lord bless this podcast to you as a means of grace for your spiritual growth. On the podcast today is Jason Rowland. He's the senior pastor and one of the elders of Believer's Baptist Church. And another of our elders, Philip Castleton. Um, Real quick before we get started, just wanted to ask you guys if you um, uh, listen to this podcast weekly and uh, you enjoy it, if you would give us a review on the podcast app, uh, it can be a difficult thing to do. Um, So if you need help, send us an email. The website is bbcemory.org. Um, and we would really appreciate a review. Um, it helps the, uh, hopefully the gospel to spread. So anyway, appreciate that. And we're going to get right into, um, the question of the day, which is what is radical depravity, Jason? Now, what we're going to be doing for the month of September with the five weeks of September, we're going to be talking about the five points of, um, Calvinism, or let's call it the doctrines of grace. Calvinism is a nickname, and I know immediately when I said that, that already there will be defenses put up against what we're about to say. Thousands of people. Yes. Hundreds of thousands yes. of people oh, on yeah. the defensive right Actually, the, the, <laughs> I think that the two people that listen perhaps will listen all the way through. That's my wife and your wife. And <laughs> my wife actually doesn't listen all that often, so no. <laughs> yeah, one person. <laughs> so the, the point is that there will be an automatic defense when you use the word Calvinism. So we don't want to use the word Calvinism because of the uh, confusion connotations that it has, but we do want to talk about doctrines of grace. And so we're going to talk for these five weeks in September, the doctrines of grace. And the first one, as Tyler said, is radical depravity. How do we understand radical depravity? But before we answer the question, I think the thing that we need to go to to really understand doctrines of grace, and there's so much here to speak to, and we're so limited with our time. I really wish that we had more time to be able to talk about all of these, particularly this first one. And so this might be a little bit longer than perhaps some of the other podcasts that are subsequent to this. But it is so important that this particular um, point is understood and explained well. And so we want to be careful how we do it. But let's back up and just talk just for a moment about... God being sovereign, because all of these points that we're going to talk about, all of the doctrines of grace, there's five of them, um, will be contingent on our understanding and our acceptance of the sovereignty of God. Mm -hmm. So the sovereignty of God means that there would be no person, uh, no rule, no authority, uh, no one in existence who God does not control, that God has ordained and controlled in all of his power and all of his wisdom and all of his authority, that God rules and reigns with justice, holiness, love, grace, goodness, all of those attributes because he is God and he is sovereignly ruling the universe. Yes. In fact, um, a, a quick verse that might make sense of that is... In Daniel uh, 4.35, and it says that that God does with the inhabitants of heaven and earth as he pleases, right? Right. And so it's that concept that we're trying to put forth here. Many, many other verses in Scripture uh, that that proclaim the same truth. But yeah, we we need to understand that that all of these uh, doctrines that we're going to be talking about today are going to be hard you're going to be hard-pressed to accept them if you deny um, that, that God is sovereign. Right. So there's not a, as R.C. Sproul um, has famously said, there's not a maverick molecule in the universe. There's not anything in the universe that is doing its own will, its own purpose, because God is sovereignly controlling that. Yeah. And let's, let's look at a couple of other verses. And again, because of the shortage of time, we can't look at the... 
plenty, the, the, the numerous verses, but here's one that speaks to the sovereignty of God out of Isaiah chapter 46. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Another text out of Isaiah chapter 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We can look at a New Testament text. Um, Acts chapter 1 verse 7. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. There's a text out of Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unscrutable, inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And that's just a small sampling. You could go to Job, um, the last chapters of Job, particularly, and see um, God declaring himself as sovereign. You could go to many of the Psalms. You can go to places in Proverbs. It, it, it is um, all through the Scripture. It is not anything that is hidden. It's not mysterious that God is sovereign. Yeah, and, and it, Ephesians chapter 1 makes a very, very plain statement, and that is that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Right. And nothing is done outside of God's sovereign uh, decree. Right. So with that beginning, talking about the sovereignty of God, and there's much more that could be said, but we want to get to the question. We just want to make sure that we are putting forth the understanding and the reality that God is sovereign. So he is sovereign in salvation. Mm -hmm. And what the doctrines of grace speak to is the work of salvation. It's a Trinitarian work. We'll bring that out as we work through each of the different doctrines. But we're talking about God being sovereign in salvation. And this is from Scripture. Now, the first 300 years of church history, the church was persecuted. And finally, in 313, Emperor Constantine um, made Christianity the religion of the empire. Well, that corrupted the um, purity of the church because then it, gained, it became mixed with the secular political system. Um, but it, it lost then some of the truths that had been taught by Jesus, by the apostolic um, men, uh, lost the doctrines of grace, had become mixed with error, confused. And then you had, in 410, um, Rome falling. And that put civilization back a thousand years. And so we had the Middle Ages. And out of the Middle Ages comes the Reformation, Martin Luther. And Martin Luther posted his 95 Theses on the castle church door in Wittenberg. And his goal was to reform the church. But basically it became a movement uh, to, rather than, than, than bringing purity back to the church, um, it, it became a movement away from Roman Catholicism. And it revised, it brought back to the surface these doctrines of grace. Mm -hmm. So that's just a little bit to get us started. So Philip, why don't you talk to us, give us a, an understanding of radical depravity. Some call this total depravity, some call it total inability. Uh, there's different names, but we're calling it radical depravity. Well, sure. Um, well, one thing that we that we must get right is the, the reason this one's first in, in the list, the first one we're going to address is because... Uh, as we go through these, many there will be people. There have been people. It's historical um, reality that uh, that these are not always very popular doctrines. Right. And and many people will say, well, I I would believe two of them or three of them or four of them or whatever, but I don't believe this one or I don't believe that one. Um, I would argue that if you get down to nuts and bolts, though, the one that people really have the most trouble with, even though they don't think they do, 
is this first one, this radical depravity. I think that if, if they can recognize the biblical testimony, um, what is um, the anthropology, the, the, what is man's condition, what is, what is, who is man according to the scripture in his lost state? Who, who is man in that state? If they can get that right, they would recognize that all of the, the following points, these doctrines, the remaining ones, are necessary or all men go to hell, right? right? So if they could get this one and get it down and understand that this is the biblical testimony, they'll recognize the other ones are, are of necessity true. So um, though they may say, as we're going to get to some later, limited atonement or unconditional election or something like that, those are the ones that they have problems with. I don't think that they do. I think ultimately their issue is they, they have a less than biblical view of, of the doctrine of man. Right. So they're, they're, a lot of times the pushback that we have experienced mm-hmm. is against uh, unconditional election. But that, that pushback, I think, is a, a faulty understanding or comprehension of radical depravity. Yes, which I believe is a, a way of saying the biblical doctrine of man in his natural state. Yes. So what does the Bible say about man in his natural state? What is he, what is he capable of, incapable of? Um, and when we say, and, and let's go ahead and set the parameters here. When we talk about man's inability, we're not talking about that, that he was created in such a way that he can't physically, but that he won't, right? right it's right. a moral inability. He right. can't because he won't. So okay. now... What does that mean? Steve Lawson has given kind of a definition of, of total depravity or radical depravity, and it goes like this. The, the first man, Adam, sinned, and his transgression and guilt were immediate, immediately imputed to all mankind, with the exception of Christ. By this one act of disobedience, he became morally polluted in every part of his being, his mind, affections, body, and will. By this sin, death entered the world, and Adam's fellowship with God was broken. Adam's guilt and corruption were transmitted to his natural offspring at the moment of conception. In turn, each of his children's children inherited the same radical fallenness. Subsequently, it has been passed down to each generation to this present day. Adam's uh, perverse nature has spread to the whole of every person. Apart from grace... Our minds are darkened by sin, unable to understand the truth. Our hearts are defiled, unable to love the truth. Our bodies are dying, progressing to physical death. Our wills are dead, unable to choose the good. Our moral inability to please God plagues every person from from their entrance into the world. In their unregenerate state, no one seeks after God. No one is capable of doing good. All are under the curse of the law, which is eternal death. Right. So now, in contrast, what people will say against what you just said, which what you said was that the sinner is dead, blind, deaf to the things of God. Mm -hmm. His heart is deceitful and desperately corrupt. His will is not free. Right. His will is not free. His will is enslaved. Right. We're talking about man's will. It's Mm -hmm. not free. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. It is in bondage to his evil nature. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, he will not, and indeed he cannot, cannot. Um, choose good over evil. But in contrast to what you just read, Steve Lawson's definition and what we have been saying, what people would say is that although they might, they might agree with some of those uh, comments in that definition and some of the, the wording of the definition, but they would say that man has not been left in a state of spiritual helplessness Mm -hmm. so that each person possesses a free will and his eternal destiny depends then on his choice of how he uses his free will. The sinner has the power to cooperate with God's spirit or resist God's spirit and perish. Mm -hmm. So I guess the question then if that's the contrast, we need to go back and think how deep, how wide is total depravity or radical depravity? 
Well, and that's the interesting thing. Some of the things you, you actually just mentioned, we will actually be dealing with as we work through some of these doctrines, maybe in this podcast, maybe in, in a future one. Right. But, um, but to answer the question of, of the depth and the width of depravity, um, the, way it, it, that the best way to articulate it, at least in my, in my own understanding, is that every aspect of my being is fallen. It's not that I'm as bad as I possibly could be. Um, so not every person is Charles Manson or, or uh, Adolf Hitler, right, um, in that sense. And even, even in the case of those two men, they could have been worse than they were. Right. right. But we're not all as bad as we could be. Uh, the, the concept being put forth here is that, but that there's not one part of me that has not that has escaped the negative consequences of the fall. So, my, my mind is not it doesn't have the capacity uh, that um, that Adams did pre-fall. My will, you know, is is enslaved to my sinful passions. Um, you know, my heart, my mind, my physical body is like I said, like Steve Lawson just said in his in that definition, um, is is dying, right, as a consequence to sin. Um, there is no part of my being that escapes the consequence of the fall. And so I am not in a state, in my natural state, in, in, my, in an unregenerate, unsaved position, in that state, I'm not in a state of moral neutrality. Every aspect of my being is inclined to sin. It, and so um, I, I do not and cannot accept the things of God because I'm in a natural state, and they are spiritually discerned. We'll go to some scriptures and look at that here in a minute. But I, I, So my will is not in a, in a state of moral neutrality where it could act one way or, or act the other way, um, irrespective of my fallen nature. It's actually bound by my fallen nature. Okay, so let's go back to the garden. Okay. Okay, so Adam is placed in the garden. He's commanded by God not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil mm -hmm. for the day that you eat of it you will surely die and Adam disobeyed and he ate the forbidden fruit and he wanted by his own choice to to make his own uh, life apart from God and so he brought spiritual death immediately upon himself mm -hmm. he didn't bring physical death immediately but he brought uh, spiritual death. Now, yeah. the process of physical death mm -hmm. was uh, set in motion, but it would come later as he lived, uh, I believe, uh, 900 years. Mm -hmm. But be that as it is, um, the thing that I want you to understand, what Romans 5.12 says, is therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, which is Adam, mm -hmm. and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sin. So Adam was our federal representative. Mm -hmm. He rebelled, he sinned, and therefore as the, um, the prodigy of Adam, we are all born in sin, which sin then has, as you said, affected every part of us, uh, our mind, our will, our emotions, um, every aspect of our being, our motivations, our thoughts, our intentions, our desires, all are affected by sin. Mm -hmm. um, and because of what the effect of sin has done to us, uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and we once walked in those, this is prior to conversion, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Um, I know that you probably have in mind to go to Romans 3 in a few moments, mm -hmm. but that helps us to understand the depth and the width of um, the, well, uh, the thing that the radical key there, depravity. Yeah, the key there is, too, it was we were by nature. It right. is our nature, yes. right? And, and it's often um, re referenced in Scripture 
um, when when talking about the lost man, they call him the natural man, mm-hmm. the man who who acts according to his nature, mm-hmm. right? right? And then it, then there's an explanation given. Um, you know, when he, the text talks in that way, it says then explanation given as to what he can or cannot or will or will not do because of his nature, right? You know, and um, so yeah. Uh, but in the context, yeah, Romans three has a lot to say about this. Um, in you know, in Paul's um, explanation of uh, the depth of man's need for a gospel, right, and his um, how utterly sinful and and wretched he is, he says this. He he takes some Old Testament text and 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 strings them together um, to 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 elucidate, you know, man's fallen position and his and who he is by nature in, in his lost state. And this is what he says, chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. And notice as we work through this, the, uh, the totality of mankind. He, he doesn't separate and categorize mankind. He says all of mankind is unrighteous. Not a single one is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks for God, that one right there is is one of the the primary ones that we ought to grab a hold of in this because so many people think that that there has been an act of grace upon lost man, which enables him to seek for God, right? But the testimony of Scripture is that man in his lost state absolutely doesn't seek for God. He may seek for what God offers, but he doesn't actually want God. So, so the depth and the width of what we're talking about, that is radical depravity, is defined by the words, no one, no one. No one, no one. No. And look at this. Well, let's go back again. None is righteous, no, not one. That, that talks about his legal standing before God, right? No one understands. Well, here we see the mind is affected. No one seeks for God, his motive is affected. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There's our will, right? Right. Uh, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of an asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. There's their mouths. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There's their relationship to others, to other men. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There's the relationship to God. Right. Uh, so we see every, every, every aspect of man, even in, even in regards to their relationships with God and man, affected by the fall. Right. Every part of them is, is depraved in that sense. So that's what we mean by radical depravity. We mean that there's not a part of man that has not been affected by the fall, and he is not left in some moral state of neutrality where he can or, or you know, where he has the capacity um, to, to choose God in and of himself. Uh, because, and it's not um, that God has created or left him in a position to where... Um, he can't in the sense that um, he doesn't have uh, capacity to in an ethical sense. He, he can't in a moral sense. And I don't know that I qualified that exactly right. But uh, I get what I'm trying to say is... Romans he, 8, 7 yeah, speaks to that. He won't. He can't because he won't. That's, that's the problem. No one seeks for God. It's not that he couldn't seek for God. If he wanted to seek for God, but his will and, and desires are so corrupt that he won't seek for God, and therefore he can't. It's right. not. A, it's not. It's a moral inability. Right. Romans eight seven says, yeah. "For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot." Yes, it cannot. And then it goes on to say, "Those who are in the flesh, this is the natural man, cannot." Please God. That word, it, it's, it's the same word, dunamis or whatever. It, it's, it's a power. He is powerless to do so. Okay. W- why? Well, it's going to go on to say that the law, God's law, God's demands are spiritual. 
and you aren't spiritual. The thing you read in Ephesians uh, chapter 2 a few minutes ago was that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. There was no spiritual life in us. All men, every single man born with the exception of Jesus Christ is born spiritually dead because of his relationship to Adam. And therefore... His natural state is one that is hostile to God, and he won't, cannot, whatever you want to call it, submit. He does not have the capacity, the moral capacity or power to do so, and and therefore he won't. Here's God's commentary on those ideas. Uh, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Mm-hmm. Now, that's the prior to the flood. That's in Genesis chapter 6. Now, Genesis chapter 8, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Ecclesiastes 9.3, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Ephesians 4. 17 and 18 says, you must know, he's talking to Christians here about their new life in Christ. And this is what he says. And you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And he's talking about the lost man here. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, right? Right. Um, We could go to Romans 1 and talk about why man needs a gospel. And and he starts in, in verse 16, he says, man, uh, that the gospel, he's unashamed of the gospel. He's willing to preach the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God unto salvation. Verse 17 says that there's a righteousness revealed. But why do we need this righteousness? Because verse 18 begins that God's wrath has been revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. And he's not talking about particular men. He's saying all men are in this category. All, sing, all men are in this category, that they have suppressed what they know about God. And then he goes on to, to give categories and, and examples of the disordered thinking uh, and, and how it plays itself out. And ultimately, that men are handed over to minds that are incapable of understanding truth, right? Right. And so uh, this is the testimony of Scripture. The um, text that you've referenced several times already is 1 Corinthians Mm 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, let's think for a minute, Philip, because how does this total or radical depravity, how does it affect um, our will? Because the argument is, well, we have free will, and we can respond to God. We can Mm -hmm. respond to a call of the gospel. So prior to conversion, where do we find our wills? Well, uh, the Scripture does talk about these things. Uh, We find them enslaved. Right. Romans, I mean, John 8, 34 says, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Right. I know we're stringing a lot of verses together here. I would encourage anybody to go back and give them some context. Look at them. We're not trying to establish a doctrine based on stringing <coughs> verses together. Right. If you know anything about us, you know that, that we love to, um, to, to give the context behind these things. But for, for time's sake, we're stringing verses together. Yes. But um, in 2 Peter 2.19, uh, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Whatever comes, overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Titus 3.3, 3, we ourselves were once foolish. He's talking about when we were lost. Disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Here's the, here's the, the long and short of it. We could go on and on. There's a lots and lots of texts like this. Romans 6 uh, is, is an extended length commentary on yes. the state of man and his enslavement to sin. But the interesting thing is that, and we may talk more about free will at some point, but here's the issue. Most people think of, they think that man has free will and they attribute, um, they attribute to that notion, if you will, um, a pagan notion of, of freedom. So they think that they have, their will is uh, capable they think it's morally neutral. They think it's autonomous. Yeah, that's autonomous, that it's self-lawed, right? right. That's what uh, autonomy means. Uh, autonomos means self-law. Um, but they do. They believe in the autonomous free will. It's funny that they want free will, but they don't offer God the same 
capacity, right? right? They don't think that God should have a free will. His will should be constrained by mine, but mine not constrained by his. That's an insult to God and a blaspheme against him. But that being said, um, we attribute to the idea of freedom a pagan notion. I wouldn't argue that we don't have free will if we constrain the concept of freedom to the biblical understanding of what I am free to act within your nature. To act within my nature. And I use this uh, example a lot, but I, it made sense to me, and so I use it, and, and hopefully it'll make sense to somebody else. But um, cats don't bark. Cats don't bark. Why? Well, it's not in their nature to do so. A cat is free to do what a cat does. Right. Dogs are free to do what dogs do. Right. Cats have no desire to bark. They don't bark. They're not ever going to bark. They're probably not going to hike their leg at a, at a fire hydrant either because right. it's not in their nature to do so, right? So, um, so if we understand freedom in that sense, then we understand that the lost man does have a, a freedom of will, but it's free to act within the bounds of his nature. So he always chooses to do what he wants to do the most at any given point in time. Um, thank R.C. Sproul for, for helping me think through some of this years ago. I'm grateful for him. But, you know, we say, well, no, that's not true. What if a man holds a gun to my head and says, give me your wallet? I, then he's coercing me. Not really, because in that moment, you've decided you want to live more than you want to have your wallet. <laughs> right. right. Faced with the circumstances in the moment, you decide what you want to do more. Right. And you always choose based on what you want most in that moment. Well, all men do this. So if we understand the testimony of Scripture, we understand uh, what it has to say about the nature of man, his, his fallen will, the enslavement to his own passions, his fleshly passions. The lost man loves to satisfy uh, the temporal um, uh, appetites of his flesh. Right. That, that doesn't mean that um, the lost man cannot do anything good in terms of human definition or understanding. So a lost man can be uh, very generous. A lost man might... Love his wife. Love his wife, kiss his babies. Mm -hmm. um, so we're not talking about they can't do anything good. It's an, we're, we're talking about they cannot do anything to please God. Yeah, and that was the statement that when we, in, in Romans 8 a minute ago, right. that outside of faith, man cannot please God. And what he was saying that... Um, the, the the response to God um, necessary to obedience and faith and, and repentance and, and the things that God demands cannot uh, and are not and will not find themselves the chosen responses of the man who's in a natural position. Right. They're outside of his nature. So he, he won't respond in that way. And, um, and it's really interesting um, that that we just can't seem to get a hold of that. Uh, we, we desperately want freedom in such a way that we'll redefine uh, all the biblical categories, you know, so that we don't, so that our lost brother, right, um, is, is good. Right. Right. Is good. He can, he can do that. Well, no, he can't. Right. I think that our definition of freedom uh, probably stems from the culture um, that we live in, in in American freedom, which is a, a great gift. We, we appreciate the political freedoms, the religious freedoms that we have. Mm -hmm. But that, I think, uh, has colored our idea of free will and freedom and um, helping us to... Um, um, redefine, if you will, the biblical categories. Yeah. Now, now let's add something to this as we are uh, trying to wrap this up, but the inability to change. Mm -hmm. Because what free will insinuates is that we have this um, ability to choose and this ability then to change. Mm -hmm. But the scripture speaks to that as well. It does. I, I, I think of uh, Job 14.4. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Mm -hmm. There is not one. Jeremiah 13.23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Um, that is, they think they can do good, but they're accustomed to do evil. Right. Um, Matthew 20, I'm sorry, Matthew 7, 16 and 18. 
You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Are figs from thistles? Uh, John 6.65 That is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by my Father. But my, the point being that they, we don't have the ability in our natural state to change ourselves mm-hmm. by being religious, being devoted, being committed, um, having willpower. We cannot change ourselves to commend ourselves in any way toward God. Right. Well, and you know, that that's right. And we don't even have the capacity to see, hear, or entertain spiritual things. That, that's one of the things that if we were to go back to, to 1 Corinthians 2, that statement you made about the natural man, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, a minute ago in his in his response to spiritual things, it be- actually begins in verse, well, back in chapter 1, the argument flows all the way through. But in verse 9, it says, um, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor entered, or, or the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. That, that's not talking about heaven. Because the very next verse says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches even the depths of God. So if you go back and imagine what, what he's, what, or, or, or entertain what's being said here, the, what, the physical eye cannot grasp spiritual things. The ear of the lost man, the natural man, cannot take in spiritual truth to understand them, nor can the heart of the natural man in his natural state, imagine or entertain spiritual truth. Can't be done. Right. How does it come about? Verse 10, these things are revealed to us through the spirit. There's a, there's an, an incapacity. Uh, and I don't know if I said that right either, but the, the, the natural man is without the, the power, the moral ability to, to take in that which is spiritual because he's spiritually dead and all spiritual truth is spiritually um, ascertained. The Spirit of God reveals to the regenerated man um, spiritual truth and brings him into the knowledge of God. So, Our own personal experience actually ought to, to affirm all of these things. Our own personal experience of our own motives, our own desires. Our own uh, children. Our, uh, yes, our own children. Uh, we see our actions, our attitudes, our thought, I mean, our thought life. If all of those were really looked at for the reality of what they are, we would probably readily agree with the summary of what Scripture says about radical depravity. So to, to, to say again, I guess, in what we're, we're talking about, we're talking about man being spiritually dead, we're talking about our minds being totally darkened in terms of understanding spiritual things, our hearts being corrupt in that we don't seek God. None of us, none are righteous, no, not one. Uh, we're in a universal uh, bondage to sin. That is that we are slaves to sin. There's no way out. Um, and also we could add to that that we're slaves to Satan. He has us as um, his children yeah. until we are converted. And slaves to do his will, it right. says, yes. Right. So, uh, and the last thing is that we talked about is that there's inability to change. We can't change ourselves to commend ourselves. So, all of those things lead to the point of how a person is saved. If all of these things are true from Scripture then how is a person ever going to come to the place where they can please God, where they love God, where their hearts are transformed, where they desire spiritual things, that they can hear and see spiritual things? How does that happen? And so that's what we're going to be trying to answer in all the the subsequent podcast for this month of September in the year 2020. Well, you know, what's interesting about, we, you know, we said we were going to try to um, cover the doctrines of grace, but really what this is, is it is a, um, a doctrine of salvation, of salvation. What we're really doing is we're covering the doctrine of salvation. Right. Um, and, and there are people who would say, well, how is that true? Well, that, that's what you're just asked. That was the question you just asked, right? right. How does a man, um, how is 
um, a, a man who is described by in all the ways that we just put forth. How is a man who is depraved in every part of his nature, how is he made right with God? Right. Mm-hmm. And on what basis is he made right with God? And that's what we're hoping to answer as we work through these doctrines. Yes. So then the thing that, as you have been listening, if you're listening to this podcast and what we have said, there's two ways you would respond. You would wholeheartedly agree, or you might begin to explain um, that no man has enough life in him that he can actually uh, reach out to God, that there's enough uh, spiritual spark in him in the image of God that he would respond to a, a gospel call. But I think in just in the brief time that we've tried to share these texts, and Philip said, and earlier, but I repeat, uh, we've just strung verses together. Be sure that you study this in context. And I want to reference a couple of books. Um, the Five Points of Calvinism, defined, defended, and documented. Great book by David Steele and Curtis Thomas. The Five Points of Calvinism, defined, defended, and documented. There's another one that I would um Um, also promote, and it is called The Five Dilemmas of Calvinism, and by it's done by Craig Brown. Uh, Those are just two, but we could give you many more. Well, I would actually like to throw out two, just as well. Uh, R.C. Sproul's Chosen by God. Yes. And The Potter's Freedom by James White. Yes. Both. um, Excellent. One is a small book. The R.C. Sproul book is small and and easy. Um, The James White's larger, thicker, uh, more difficult read, but well worth. Both of them well worth it. Right. So your response can be one of those two ways, but what we want to be able to to do as we end the podcast is make sure we're speaking in grace, make sure we're speaking with clarity, making sure that we're um, we're not trying to say anything um, different than what Scripture has always said. Mm-hmm. We're trying to be consistent with Scripture, and we want to make sure that we convey a truthful message. We are accountable to God. We are going to answer for the things that we've said about Scripture. Yes, mm-hmm. and, and the way that we represent this. Right. right? Yeah. But the thing um, that we must say is that this is not an exhaustive, uh, obviously, um, handling of, no. of this topic. There's so much that could be said that we uh, don't have time for um, constrained by, um, obviously, uh, and an, it constrained in an effort to to keep these in in a, in a manageable, listenable, um, you know, mm. formats. Right. So. It can be a tough pill to swallow for some people, but I think it paints a, the most beautiful picture that you could ever imagine. Right. I mean, right. if it you does. if you accept it, you know. Yeah, I right? think the struggle, and I think this will be the struggle for for some, is that they they desperately want to think that there's something good in them. Right, mm-hmm. and that's what it, this this is offensive to the in, to them in their natural state because they they want to be they want to think of themselves or as their of their husbands or their wives or their friends or their kids or whatever they want to think of them as as good. Most people, if asked, do you think people are basically good or basically bad? The answer is, I think people are basically good, but that, that's not biblical. That's not biblically tenable. If you just work through the scripture, realize that man in his natural state is anything but good. It doesn't mean that he doesn't do, um, from man's perspective, some things that are good. But from God's perspective, none of those things are good because they're done outside of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, but all that being said, uh, we, we, we tried to establish this from the beginning so that as we work through the other tenets, we would recognize that... Um, uh, unconditional election and, 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 and God's particular work in atonement and, and his uh, irresistible um, effectual call and, 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 and his keeping of man from beginning to end in his salvation and, and the preservation that he provides, these things are of necessity. Um, they're of necessity true, and they're biblical. Right. But because we recognize that we have to start with um, the foundation of, of, of man's utter ruin. So let me go back to what you said, um, Tyler, because it prompted me to think about this. That um, what, what good is it? So let's say that someone has held to uh, the idea that man has free will, can choose God, that um, he has enough spiritual life 
that he can respond to God. So why have these discussions? Well, you know, is the the Calvinist and Arminian, which is the other view, um, are these, um, is that really a good debate? Why debate it? And you said that when you grasp this and begin to think about it, that it, it elevates the grace of God. It elevates who God is. It makes God huge and yourself small. Whereas before, it might be that you thought of yourself and God on a, on a pretty level playing field because you could exert your will and he would have to restrain himself or submit himself to that and vice versa. This makes God big. And some, some of the things that I would just throw out that this actually is um, an article by John Piper, and, and we don't have time to do all of these, but the doctrines of grace help me to marvel at my own salvation. Mm-hmm. Why would God save me? Right? Why would God save me? And the the answer is that because he's a big, gracious God, and we'll see more of that as we work through these doctrines of grace. But um, these truths make me stand in awe of God, make me thankful for grace, help me in centering my worship. Mm-hmm. Um, these truths um, help me to think about sin properly, help me even um, bemoan what's happening in our culture, help me to think about evangelism mm-hmm. better. Right? Yeah. yeah, for sure. I mean, all of these things are the benefits of trying to get this right. And so it's not a fruitless argument. And, and there have been times in my life, honestly, and we just celebrated 20 years of pastoral ministry here, and there's been times in my life when um, I just was weary of the debate. Mm-hmm. Because most people... Um, that sit in an average Southern Baptist church, and we can use that because that's that's our tribe, mm-hmm. um, would not have been taught these things and certainly would have not given much consideration if they had ever heard it somewhere. And even in the last two weeks, we've had people in our own congregation, these are people that are uh, perhaps looking to join um, who said, we've never heard these things before. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about um, people that are mature in age and um, that have spiritual experiences, have church experience, mm-hmm. and they say, we've never heard this before. Yeah, and you know, I think that all those things you said are true, and, and there's an unfortunate aspect to the fact that not only have pastors... Um, avoided these things well because so many in in your average southern baptist church um think they're just horrible they 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 hate these doctrines yes but but they they're not indifferent to them or don't or or even they don't even they don't represent them even in the sense that um here's what the bible says i don't understand it i'm not sure how it works together you know I, i don't know what to do with them they don't even represent them that way most of the time they're represented as these things are evil don't believe them if you ever hear this particular term, you know, Calvinist or whatever, you know, turn, run, tuck, tail, stand, you know, st- you know, break out the silver bullet and kill the, you know. Uh, the Calvinist. Yeah, I mean, because it's horrible. And and then when these people, they come to a church, and this is the amazing thing. They come to a, they come to a church like ours that we really try to be biblically faithful and, and to make um, – uh, prayer and Bible reading and exposition of Scripture priority in our services and our teaching, and they come and they and they and they and for a while they go. I've, I've never been at a church that puts so much emphasis on Scripture, and then you get to a text like one of these texts, and they go, "See, you must be one of those Calvinists. I'm out," and you're going. Well, it's amazing that you know for six months you you, you know the te- your testimony was we've never been anywhere where we were taught the Scripture like you've taught it. 
I've learned more yeah. in six months than I've ever learned and, in my life. And then, you, you know, one, this stuff gets brought up, and they're ready to jump ship. Well, why? Because they've been taught their whole life that this is evil, 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 even though they, they, there's somehow a disconnect between the fact that the last six months, the reason that there's been spiritual growth in them is because they've been exposed verse by verse by verse by verse through the Word. And then they get to a part of the Word that doesn't suit them, and instead of recognizing that they need to change and subject themselves to the word, they go, I'm just going to abandon it. I'm out. I'll go somewhere where I don't get taught rather than sit here where I get taught something I don't like. Right. And, and conversely, it's crazy. Conversely, we're not saying that somebody who doesn't agree um, and doesn't see it exactly like what we're presenting it um, would be um, evil. No. They, they would put that label on us. Yes. But we're not saying that about them. We're not saying, hey, if you don't understand the doctrines of grace, then you're evil and you're not even a true believer. We would not say that. No. We even say to people, you do not have to believe this to be a member of Believer's Baptist Church. Just know that at times when we come to a text like Ephesians 1 and 2 or um, Romans 6, um, Romans 1... That the, the thoughts that we are conveying through these five podcasts may bubble to the top. And please just don't argue with it and help us if you have questions, if you want to discuss it. Let's talk in private. Let's don't make it a divisive issue. That's the only thing that we ask. Mm-hmm. We're not saying anybody is evil because they're not a Calvinist. Yeah. The We're distinction not, we try to make is this is what we teach. We're not saying this is what you have to believe. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And um, but yeah, the crazy thing is that um, that people respond the way they do. And um, and it is unfortunate. Like you said, if people were to leave our church and, and go somewhere else, I, I wouldn't be discouraging them if they went to a church that didn't hold to these doctrines. I would. I, my only concern is, do they teach the the gospel? Even though I I think they don't get the gospel in its fullness if they don't understand these things, if they don't teach these things. But I mean, do they teach the basics of the gospel? Are they trying to be faithful to Scripture even if they don't understand it all? I mean, uh, those are those are good things, and they don't have to hold to these things for they for us to believe that they're Christians and are well intentioned and all of those things, but they don't offer that same grace right. in a lot of cases. Right. Okay, so radical depravity is the question that we answered in this podcast. Now, how does a man go from being radically depraved to being a lover of God? So the next step in the uh, doctrines of grace, the next point that we want to make in the next podcast is unconditional election. Unconditional election. So we'll do that next time. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about this, be sure, as Tyler said at the beginning of the podcast, uh, email our website, um, reach out to us by phone, text. We'll be glad to talk with you about these things. Thanks for listening to the Asking for a Friend podcast. If what you've heard today has been helpful to you, please subscribe. On behalf of the elders of BBC, I invite you to a worship service at Believer's Baptist Church this coming Sunday. The Bible study hour begins at 9.15 and the worship service begins at 10.30. Grace and peace. Peace.